Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Hey, Amen. Good morning. How are you? If you have a Bible, open it to Colossians chapter 1, please. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that Bible for yourself as our gift to you. As you're finding Colossians chapter 1, let me mention that uh, just to piggyback on something that Robert said at the beginning of the service, maybe before you were in the sanctuary, that next week is uh, nationally what churches like us in our stream have been celebrating for the last and commemorating and encouraging one another to remember as Orphan Sunday, where we as a church uh, think deeply about the plight of the orphan around the world and specifically uh, what our responsibility as a church is to care for orphans in our city and, and around the world. And we have a, a pretty vast network of people in this church, in fact, dozens of families that have either adopted children, both domestically and internationally, or are fostering children uh, that are in the care of the county here in our city. And so for the past four or five years, we've been setting aside a Sunday of the year to think about how we can care for the least of these among us, especially these vulnerable children. So next Sunday, we will have a guest speaker, although I think many of you may be familiar with him. His name is Herbie Newell, and he is the executive director of Lifeline Children's Services, which is a wonderful ministry based out of Birmingham that we have been in partnership for the past 10 years or so. And Herbie will be preaching on Psalm 146. And then right after the service next Sunday, we are gonna have a lunch for all of those in the church that are interested in thinking about adoption or foster care. And we pray that that would be a great number of you. Uh, and we'll also, if you have adopted or are currently fostering and are part of the church, we want you to come to that meeting as well to help equip and encourage and resource uh, families in the church who are thinking about that. And Herbie, after preaching on Sunday, We'll then answer questions and tell us a little bit more about some of the resources that are available to families that are wanting to do that. And by the way, uh, Lifeline, the, the ministry that Herbie is the executive director for, is the ministry that has linked us with uh, King Jesus Church in, in Kampala, Uganda. And so, in fact, you've met Herbie before uh, last, earlier this year, or I guess a year ago, when Pastor Raphael Kujubi from Busega, Uganda, was here to preach. Uh, Herbie was here with him and introduced him. And so hopefully Her Herbie will be familiar to you. He's an excellent preacher. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from Herbie next week. So you know, put that on your calendars and look forward to it. Also, as we've mentioned the past few Sundays, um, this will be my last Sunday preaching for the rest of the year. I am taking a sabbatical for the rest of the month of November and December. And so I'll be speaking a little bit about that this morning and then in more detail tonight. And if you're not familiar with somebody, I think, asked one of our pastors, what is a sabbatical? Uh, well, that's a time of rest coming from this biblical word of Sabbath. We planted this church 13 years ago with a very small group of people. The Lord has been extravagantly kind to us, really despite us 
And um, over that time, um, I have really not taken an extended period of rest, and I'll, I'll talk more about that again this morning as we look at Colossians chapter 1 and this evening about why I am taking the sabbatical. And while I'm away, um, uh, the other brothers on staff will be preaching with a couple of our elders, and that will start obviously the week after next when Herbie is preaching. And then, Lord willing, I will be back here the first Sunday of January where we will pick back up in Romans chapter 11. And so, unless Jesus comes back in 2019, we, I think, will finish Romans. Um, there's 16 chapters. We'll start at 11. And um, we're going we're gonna to roll up our sleeves and get into it. And, of course, we may take a few breaks along the way as well, like we've done for the past two years going through Romans. Well, let me... Let me pray, and then we're going to read through the first 14 verses of Colossians chapter 1. Uh, and I want to speak to you from my heart pastorally. Our practice here is to preach expositionally through. In other words, we want to expose the meaning of the text to our hearts. We don't want to start with a topic or an idea and then find supporting scriptures. Uh, but this morning, it's a little bit different. I, I want to preach and speak pastorally from my heart about my hopes and prayers for us as a church, and I want to unashamedly ask for your prayers for me during this sabbatical. And so this is a bit unusual to what we usually do when we just work through books of the Bible. And I want to use Colossians chapter 1 and this prayer that Paul prays for the church at Colossae to be a kind of guide for us this morning. Why, why Colossians? I, you, know, you guys kid me about my love for the book of Romans, but I think actually Colossians may be just my favorite little letter in the New Testament. It, it's near and dear to my heart because I think it was the first book of the Bible that I actually read all the way through. I became a Christian as a senior in high school. I think the Lord opened my heart to the gospel in the spring of my senior year in high school in 1989. My brother and his girlfriend at the time, who's now my sister-in-law, were witnessing to me. And she took me to an evangelistic crusade where I think I heard the gospel for the first time and trusted in Christ. And then very shortly after that, I was driving in a car with my sister-in-law to my brother's spring football game. He was playing football in college in Arizona, and we were driving and we were in the middle of the desert on Interstate 8 in between El Centro, California and Yuma, Arizona, which is where nowhere empties into nothing. <laughs> and she knew that I had responded to the gospel a few days before, and she asked me, Brad, what are you reading in the Bible? As just a good discipling question as an older Christian to a younger Christian. And I, I, at that point, it hadn't dawned on me that I needed to read the Bible. And she sensed that. And she said, well, maybe you should start with Colossians. And it was a wonderful recommendation. And I read Colossians later that evening. And this book has gripped my heart since then. And there's a prayer in Colossians chapter 1 that is, is my prayer for you. And I want it to be your prayer for me as well. So let me pray, and let's, let's read through these few verses. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that we can sing to you openly in this day of prayer for the persecuted church. As, as Robert has already prayed, we think about our brothers and sisters in North Korea and in China and 
certain Islamic countries where they are meeting underground and unable to preach and pray and sing publicly. We pray for your grace and strength to them. We know that you are sovereignly in charge of all governments and dictators and presidents. We know that our hope is not in political freedom, but in the freedom that only the gospel can bring. But nevertheless, we pray that you would open doors for the gospel and for freedoms for these brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. As we look at this text this morning, Lord, I thank you for just the privilege to think deeply about the Christian life and about life together as a local church. I thank you for 13 years of, of existence as a church at Cross Point. I thank you for the privilege that you've given me for the past 13 years to, to help to plant and pastor this church. Lord, I pray for many more. I know that we're not guaranteed tomorrow and that you tell us in James that we shouldn't, we shouldn't make extravagant plans for the future. But if it be your will, Lord, I do pray for more years of fruitfulness. I pray that even today, as I prepare for a time of rest, that you would help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus and the gospel and what it means to be a local church. Help me to grow as a shepherd and as a believer. I pray that as we come around the Lord's table this morning on the first Sunday of November and receive communion, I do pray, Lord, that your people would be nourished in the gospel and strengthened for life in Christ. And I pray for my friends that are in this room that are not yet believing or trusting in Jesus. Lord, my hope is not in anything in them, any goodness in them, but my hope is in the richness of your mercy that this morning you might give them a new heart so that they can believe, that you might awaken faith in them so that they can trust in your son's perfect life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would do all these things for the good of your people, for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since, listen to verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now let's pause there at the end of verse 5. We're going to keep reading in just a moment. And where I really want us to get to is, is verses 9 and following where Paul prays two specific things for the church at Colossae, and I want to apply those prayers to us as a church, and from those two prayers, I think we see some results that come from them, but before we get to verse 9, there's a few things that I want us to see in these, these preceding verses, and in verses 4 and 5 in particular, I want you to see the logic of, of Paul here as he's, as he's encouraging the church at Colossae. 
He's, he's thanking God for them when he prays for them. And he's going to pray for them here in just a moment, starting in verse 9. But look at verse 4. He says, we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints. So he's, he's encouraging them for two things that he sees in them. In verse 4, faith in Christ Jesus and love that you have for all the saints. So they, they loved God. Think about it in this way. They're, they're kind of doing exactly what Jesus said in the Gospels was the epitome of the law, the epitome of the Christian life. We are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind and others. And that's exactly what Paul is commending the church at Colossae for here in verse 4. Your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints. But look at why he says that they have faith in Jesus and they love one another. Verse 5, because the grounding of this thing, the reason of this faith that is evident in you and the love that you have for people around you, the saints. Why? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So think about Paul's logic there. He's saying that actually, not because of anything that God is blessing you with here temporally in this life, but because of your eternal perspective, because you are leaning forward into the hope of heaven, that eternal focus is producing in you a kind of worldly fruit bearing that means that your love for Jesus is growing and your love for other people is growing. Do you see that? In other words, Paul is saying here that this life, the Christian life, believing in Jesus, is not merely about these 80 or 90 years. In fact, he says, unlike the little colloquial phrase that we use about people where we say that sometimes people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good, Paul is actually saying the opposite. He's saying that because you are so heavenly minded, you're actually of some earthly good. That's what he's saying. He's saying because you are such eternally minded people, because you are not dominated by the circumstances of these earthly decades, it is actually fueling and growing your faith in Jesus and it's causing you to increase in your love for all the saints. Who, by the way, we've talked about this a lot. Everybody around you can be hard to love. That ain't easy. No, no. You, yeah, <laughs> a little baby got it and gave me an amen. But y'all didn't get it. That is not easy. We, thank you, we are hard to love. But because heaven is so forever and so good, it actually frees us to care for one another and to love Jesus more. That's, that's really, 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 really encouraging. And that's a full-orbed, full-rounded understanding of the Christian life. Listen to the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. We've read it before together as a church, but I think this is one of the most beautiful catechism questions in the history of the Protestant church. This came out of the Protestant Reformation in Heidelberg, Germany. 
And the first question of this little teaching mechanism, that's all that a catechism is. It's a manner by which Christians teach one another biblical truths by question and answer format. It's a wonderful thing to do for your own soul. Um, and it's a wonderful way to just teach your children truths of the Christian faith. And the Heidelberg Catechism is an excellent, excellent catechism. And it says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not, listen to this, not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. That's not a man-centric proclamation. That's a, that's a biblical repetition of the truth in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So the Heidelberg Christians there said, in fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So do you see this full orb, eternal perspective of the Christian life when we see it and that's what Paul saw in the Colossians, that you were so excited about eternity that it actually freed you up to be useful now. Man, Americans, we need to get that, don't we? Because our, our mood, and mm, I'm, 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 I'm like this. I'm like this. Our mood is so easily determined by temporal circumstances. Isn't it? I mean, I'm, man, I'm so fragile. Um, I am. And I, I think you may be too. And I, 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 think, I think I need to drink from the river of verses 4 and 5. And I need, to, I need to think about heaven a little bit more. And that's what Paul is committing these Colossians for. And look, look where he says all of this comes from in the next second half of verse 5 of this. You have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. That word gospel means the good news about what God has done to save people for himself. The gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, let's, let's pause there before we get into Paul's prayer and just note a few things here. Is that this man, Epaphras, seems to be very significant in the life of the Colossian church. And Epaphras very likely heard the gospel from Paul when Paul was planting the church in Ephesus. So Paul himself did not plant the church in Colossae. Paul was likely in prison when he wrote this letter to the Colossian church. But years before, he was preaching the gospel in Ephesus, and he did it for about two years. And the city of Ephesus, which was a false, idol, pagan-worshiping, commerce city, was turned upside down by the gospel that Paul preached. In fact, there was a riot in the city. They were making little idol 
bobblehead dolls and selling them. And the blacksmiths that were making these little bobblehead dolls of false Greek gods started to become Christians and started to stop doing what they were doing. And it was affecting the commerce of the city. And there was a riot. And during that time, Epaphras very likely came to faith, heard the gospel from Paul, took it back to Colossae, and through Epaphras' witness, he planted the church. And then we know now the church at Colossae is thriving. And now Epaphras is bringing word to Paul about maybe some potential problems and misunderstanding in the Colossae church. And that gives rise to the letter at of, of Colossians where Paul is writing this church that secondhand he helped to inspire and start through the witness of Epaphras. He's writing to encourage them in the faith. Just, just note here that, that this man Epaphras, and think about your own life. We all have an Epaphras, don't we? Somebody brought the gospel to us. Somebody did. I can think very specifically when I was a, in high school, my brother went away to college he became a believer. I grew up in a nominally Christian home, meaning that we were believers. We were Christians. We were not true believers. We were Christians in name only. We were not truly born-again Christians. We were just sort of culturally American Christians. Went to a church where the pastor just read moral tales, never preached the gospel, never talked about sin, never talked about Jesus' work on the cross, never talked about the holiness of God, Never really talked from the Bible. Would just read some like lectionary readings and then tell stories. And we were falsely assured that we were right with God. But my brother went away to college, heard the gospel, became a true Christian, came back and witnessed to me over the course of several years along with his girlfriend, who's now my sister-in-law. And they were like Epaphrases to me. I can remember sitting in my den of my parents' home where I grew up and telling my brother, what are you talking about? I'm a Christian. And he said, no, you're not. And then I remember talking to a family friend that was a like a child psychologist, and I think it was like a covert attempt from my parents to get me some counseling on the side because they knew that I was struggling. And I remember telling this lady, these words came out of my mouth, and I was frustrated with my older brother who over the course of my years of high school, as he would come back from college, would witness to me, and I remember being frustrated and convicted and challenged and offended by his assertion that what he believed was not exactly what I believed. And I remember telling this lady who was a family friend, I'm a Christian, but not like my brother who's one of those born-again Christians. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> those words actually came out of my mouth. And over the course of time, the Lord used the beauty and the strength and the surpassing grace of the gospel to just overwhelm my heart with a sense of my sin. I was a, on the outside a good kid who had a lot of things going for him, but I was, I was, uh, I was steeped in sin. Um, and God used my brother as, a, as an Epaphras, just a faithful witness of my brother who's just an average, ordinary guy. In fact, I would argue he's not, he's not that sharp, honestly, if you think, no, I'm just kidding. We always kid each other. 
And he used my brothers and Epaphras to bring the gospel. And the gospel, the word of truth. And friends, this is, this is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that there's a holy God who's perfect and good and has created you for his glory. But you, like me and every other person that's ever lived, have rebelled against God. Now, that, this is where it gets mysterious that we can't fully understand. That didn't happen as a surprise to God. He knew that creation would fall. He knew that our first parents, Adam and Eve, would rebel against him in the garden. And yet, even before that, he planned for the redemption of a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue that he would save out of that fall. But we like every other human being, have rebelled against God. And because God is infinitely holy, even our sin, no matter how it compares to people horizontally around us, but because how it compares to the infinitely holiness of God, deserves eternal separation from Him. And it has rendered us unable to do anything in and of ourselves to make us right with the holy God. But God, who is rich in mercy, sends his son Jesus to live the perfect life, become fully man. He's fully God, but yet he's fully man. This is a mystery that we can't fully explain. But Jesus, God the Son, eternally God, truly God, becomes a man, a person just like us, endures everything that we endure, is tempted in all ways like we have been tempted, yet without sin, and then voluntarily lays down his perfect obedience on the cross to absorb, to satisfy, to extinguish, to cancel the wrath of God that should have been ours. All those that will trust not in our own righteousness, not in our relative morality compared to the people around us, but those of us that will trust in Jesus' substitutionary, sacrificial, in our place, death and resurrection. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. And then when it hits our hearts, it makes us alive and it causes us to bear fruit. And that's what it did in the Colossian church. Friends, we all have an Epaphras. And maybe, maybe your Epaphras was your parents and they witnessed to you. They brought the gospel to you when you were a little baby. And you just grew up believing. Thank God for that testimony. But know that it's no less miraculous than anybody else's. Because you were born dead in your sin and God in his kindness caused you to be awake at a very early age. And so for all you mothers out there, you're, you're, like a, you're an Epaphras bringing the gospel to the, to the heart of your children. And then let's get into verse 9 where Paul prays two specific things. And then from these two requests flow some results that he hopes to see and that I hope to see in, in us and in me. He says in verse 9, And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that's the first thing he prays for there, that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11 being strengthened, this is the second thing that he prays for, 
being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So there's two things that he prays for, that they be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, verse 9. And then secondly, he prays in verse 11 that they be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Let's look first at verses 9 and 10, what he prays there, that they be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. First, he prays for the Colossian church to have this kind of wisdom and understanding of the Christian life. Just look, just look at the logic and the flow of thought of verses 9 and 10. He's, he's praying for them not to just have a kind of general knowledge, but a knowledge that is spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this is not some esoteric, hard to attain, only for the super gifted or super intellectual, but it's a, it's a wisdom that is attainable and needs to be prayed for by every Christian. That phrase, spiritual wisdom, is again, it's not some sort of guru type wisdom. It's the wisdom that comes and is available for every Christian who has been made alive by the Spirit of God. In fact, if we took more time to explain the gospel, we would say also that the good news of the gospel is not merely that Jesus died for our sins and rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave and has justified and reconciled us to God, but also that then he takes residence, he, he comes in us, he, he, he gives us his Holy Spirit, God regenerates, he makes us alive, and he takes up residence in the life of a Christian, which then enables us to pursue Holy Spirit-based wisdom and understanding because he's in us. And he gives it to us through his word, through the body of Christ as we come around each other, and because, as Romans 8 says, his spirit dwells in us. And when he does this, look what it produces in what Paul is praying that it would produce in the life of the Christians in Colossae. He says, I want you to grow in this wisdom. I want you to grow up and mature in the faith. Why? Verse 10, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So I take walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, and bearing fruit in every good work to be kind of three phrases that really speak about just growing in deed, growing in good works, growing in obedience to God, growing in becoming more like Jesus, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So good works and knowledge go together in the life of the Christian. A person who just is merely intellectual and just knows a lot about the Bible or knows a lot about God, but, but doesn't increasingly strive to live it out is, is not a picture of the Christian life that Paul is picturing here. And a person that just kind of cares about doing things for God, but doesn't grow in the knowledge of God through the word, is, is going to be stunted in their growth. And Paul is saying, let these two things come together in the life of a Christian and in the life of the church. So let me, let me apply this briefly to us as a church, and then, and then maybe indulgently to myself before we move on to the next thing Paul prays for. 
I'm praying for us that we as a church, now 13 years old, as a a faith family, would grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Friends, he has not saved us merely to just gather together to have services that are encouraging to us. He's saved us for a purpose so that we would be a kind of city on a hill, that we would walk in a manner worthy, that would help each other follow Jesus That we as a church wouldn't just know doctrinal, biblical truths, but that we would actually please him and that we would bear fruit and increase in the knowledge of God. And friends, I I think this is, in, in, in no ways is this a kind of scold. I think we are really doing that here, but I just want to see us do it more. I want to see you as individual Christians grow. I want you to lean forward. I want, I want this to be a place where husbands and men in particular, hear my heart, sisters, on this. I, I don't mean this to be chauvinistic in any way, but if, if 20 years of pastoral ministry has taught me anything and 13 years of pastoring this church in particular has taught me is that generally women are more predisposed to being spiritually hungry for the things of God. And men generally need to be kicked in the tail and prodded. And I think that is really the front lines of spiritual warfare. Because men in God's complementary design are meant to be the spiritual leaders. And if you can make a man indifferent or lazy, you can win the battle. A man who is on fire for Christ, his wife and his family will almost always follow him. Because it's the way God has designed men and women. But if a woman is on fire for the Lord and her husband is a bump on the log, it's often very challenging. That man will often be threatened by the spiritual vigor of his wife and he will sink into further passivity. And I I think this church is full of men who are hungry for the Lord. I do. This is in no way a scold. It's just to say that God give us more of that. And for those, I mean, it's a large group here. Certainly, certainly some of y'all might be thinking, man, I am kind of a bump on the log. And if you're thinking that, you probably are. And maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now to say, like, stop. Stop playing tiddlywinks. You have a mission. You have a purpose. You're in this church for a reason. You, God made you alive for a reason. And it, it, it's, to, it's to link arms with, to grow, to, to have your head on a swivel, to look for opportunities to grow and to please God and to increase in the knowledge of God. Oh, friends, that, that's before us. May, may we see more of that in our church. And, and now for me. Um... Pray for me to grow in wisdom about the future of Crosspoint and, and about just my ministry. We planted this church when I was 34 years old, and I was really unprepared for pastoral ministry. I'd been on staff at another church here in town. There was a, 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 a loving, gracious body of Christ, but in a lot of ways, just theologically and doctrinally and pastorally, I was completely unprepared. 
Before we started this church, I was going through a theological transformation where I was basically changing my views on a bunch of really important doctrinal issues. And by the way, if you're a young man that is planting a church, you should probably have your core theology figured out before you actually plant the church, not as you start the church. It's like snapping the ball and then coming up with a play that you're going to run as the defense is coming at you. It's not advisable. But that's what we did. And so I, I, I feel like I, I need more wisdom. I feel like I need, I think I have grown theologically, Lord willing, I hope, in these past 13 years. I think, I, I think, I think I'm pretty certain on what I believe now. I think some of that's pretty entrenched. I want to be open to maybe being wrong on some issues, but I think I've grown as a preacher and teacher. Uh, but I think that there are some areas where I have lagged behind. I think I need to grow as a leader. Uh, and as a, the type of leader that can care for a church that's larger and growing. And I think I need to grow in how to think about using my, however God has gifted me, in the most fruitful way. Um, I, I think in some ways... When we started this church, we were just a dozen or so people. In many ways, now it's 13 years later and we're hundreds of people. I sometimes still interact and think and lead as if we're still just a, a small church plant in my living room rather than a, a larger growing church. And, and that's caused me to, at times, um, not prioritize things that should be prioritized and to... Um, and to really run myself into the ground. Now, lest you think that I'm trying to sort of like hashtag humble brag, you know, and pat myself on the back, like you're saying, oh, but it's because you love us so much. Well, maybe there's a little bit of that, but I actually think some of it is a sinful love of self. I do, I, th I think it's a kind of reverse pride where I have not transitioned well into making myself less necessary in a lot of people's lives because I think at the core, there's still something in me that just wants to be made much of. And I, I need to die to that. And I'm confessing that to you. And I need you to help me to be weaned from that. Pastors often are prideful people. And sometimes their pride manifests itself in, in a kind of arrogance and sharpness. And sometimes it, it manifests itself in trying to be too many things to too many people. And, and, and I've done that. And it's not, not because I have some altruistic, wonderful shepherding heart. I think, I think at the core of it, there's, there's some pride there. There's some self-centeredness, and I, I repent of that. Now, a word on this front about my sabbatical and how we can grow as a church. And it's uncomfortable for me to say these things, but out of love, I think they need to be said. I, th I think, to some degree, that this church needs to be less dependent on me. And, ah, God, I feel like, who the, who am I to say those things? But I feel like, I feel like we need to grow in hearing from and being led by a plurality of elders, which we've had for many years, but, 
but really specifically in a, in a way that we can grow in these two months while I am not preaching is creating a culture where the younger men on staff here have opportunities to really grow in their influence and authority and their voices. One of my prayers for Crosspoint is that we would be a place where young men can be seasoned and fostered for ministry. I think what Columbus needs is not a really large, biblically solid church, but a bunch of biblically solid churches. And one of the things that I hope that we will do in the future, and we've just done this this past summer where we sent out Will Hawk and the Midtree Church Plant, I want us to do more of that. I want young men that are on staff at Crosspoint to have many opportunities to cut their teeth in preaching before a gracious body of Christ so that they can fill empty pulpits in churches around our city or go to other places and pastor churches for the glory of God. And these are important times where if you, and, and this is uncomfortable for me to say, because this is, it's not like I'm some great preacher and it's not like the other brothers that will be preaching aren't, aren't great preachers, they are. But I just know how church culture is. You get used to me and you think, well, you know, Brad's not going to be here, so I'm going to kind of lay out. If you do that, you're missing the bigger part of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. This is an important time. Amen. I hope this would be wonderful if, like, the services would be packed. And maybe when I come back, you're like, yeah, Brad, why don't you just preach every, every couple Sundays now again? These, <laughs> I mean, that would thrill my heart. Do you hear my heart on that? I'm not, ah, it just feels so icky for me to say those things. It's like, ah, I just feel like I need to go just like hose myself off. You, you hear my heart, I hope. The second thing he prays for them is to be strengthened, verse 11, with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. He prays for spiritual strength. According to what? Not our strength. According to God's glorious might. I pray that we as a church would grow with the power of God and the gospel and that it wouldn't be according to some sort of man-centered giftedness or anything that we have innately as a congregation that I pray that an onlooking world would look at the life of Crosspoint and they would say, oh, that church there, it's, it's, it's God glorifying, not because of anything in them, but because of God and that people would see it as a kind of aroma that God would use to draw people to himself. And that, that he would give us, what is the result of this kind of God-centered strength, gospel-fueled strength and power. The result of that is endurance and patience with joy. So specifically for me, friends, I, I feel like oftentimes in the 13 years that we have, have been together as a church family that a lot of times I will just run into ministry efforts out of my own strength. And, and it has at times caused me to be very discouraged. It's caused me to uh, be very pessimistic. And it's caused me to really 
be very, very man-centered. And I am asking for you to pray for me that I would be strengthened with, with all power according to his glorious might for endurance. I will be 48 in a couple months. And um, I, I pray and I hope that I have a few more decades left of maybe ministry here. or I don't know, whenever you guys tell me the time's up, like the gong show, remember that? It's just somebody... Just kind of come and get me. And that um, I would grow in patience and joy. I, I need to learn to rest better. I, I need to... Sp- sp- I need to spend more time with the Lord rather than to telling other people about Him. And I need more endurance and patience and joy. Um, Charles Spurgeon said that the reason for any fruitfulness in his ministry was the prayers of his people. And he said that the prayer meetings of his church were like the boiler room. Now, this was Victorian London back in the mid-1800s, and they would be low industrial buildings and large manors and houses. They would have boiler rooms where they would actually, through these industrial boilers, create steam which then fueled the energy for the house. And Spurgeon called the prayers of his church the boiler room. And, I, and I'm, I'm asking for your prayers. And this is what I'm praying for you. And then Paul concludes this in verse 12. He says, giving thanks to the Father. Oh, that we would be just a a, a gratitude-filled church. Just thankful to God. I mean, come on, we didn't know which way was up 13 years ago. And God has been gracious. He alone deserves all the glory. And what has this God who is so gracious done? He's qualified you, dear saints, you and me to share In the inheritance, I think that's referring to this eternal hope laid up for us in heaven. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance that Peter calls imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you of the saints in light. And he, verse 13, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have We have, it's ours, the forgiveness of sins. (laughs) There's nothing sweeter than to live for this with a group of people. There's nothing sweeter. We're going to come together now and receive communion as as a faith family. If you're a believer in Jesus... We invite you to come to this table with this church family. If you're not a believer in Jesus yet, we don't want you to take of this meal because we don't want you to do something that you don't truly believe. The Bible's very clear that what we're about to do is we're receiving a little piece of bread that symbolizes, signifies Jesus' 
body that was broken on our behalf for our sin. And his blood, the little cup that we will take is the cup that was spilled. His blood that was spilled for us. And we are coming to this table to remember the gospel. To re-examine our lives in light of it. To remind ourselves what has saved us and how we are to live And to say to one another that we are a family. What do families do? They eat together. And we, as we come around this table, are remembering what God has done for us. And we are waiting for one another, looking for one another, reminding one another that we are together nourished by Christ alone. And that we are walking through this life together to bring glory to God who has delivered us from this dominion of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom, this family called the church. Let's do that together. Friends, let me pray. And then the team will come and sing. And then we'll stand. And as you are ready, you come to the usher closest to you. Receive the elements, the bread and the cup, and hold on to them. And then Robert will lead us to receive together. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. You didn't need to, but you sent an Epaphras to my heart, to my life, and you awakened my soul with the beauty of the gospel. You've done that for all those that are in this room that are trusting in Jesus. You in your sovereign, providential, specific way, sent a messenger of the gospel to us. Maybe it was mom and dad. Maybe it was a friend in college or a coworker that shared with us the only way that a sinful person can be reconciled to a holy God, not by works, not by church attendance, not by good deeds, not by prayers that we recite, but only by faith in the finished work of Jesus, your son. And you, after you have saved us, knit us together with a family and you've given us a mission, a joyful mission to serve you, to make much of you, to grow for our sanctification, for our life with you, to be used by you for your glory and for the joy of others. And you've called us to roll up our sleeves and to do this together and to give thanks and to remember the gospel and to grow and to be patient and endure. Or there's nothing sweeter this side of heaven than to be part of your people redeemed by your son. May we be a gospel-centered people, a Christ-centered people, a Bible-centered people, a church-centered people for the sake of your glory and the hope of others around us. And as we come to this table, Lord, let us find our nourishment on Christ and what he has done for us. And I pray that you do these things and strengthen your people. In Jesus' name, amen.